This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm Brian. I'm Eric. And we're going to talk about Star Maker, a 1937 book by Olaf Stapleton. Um, and I have a radical thesis I want to have you guys think about and comment on. Um, it says on the Wikipedia entry that this is a novel. I don't think it's a novel exactly. It has a plot vaguely. But I think it might be a true story. What do you think about this idea? What? Is there any other kind of response? Okay, okay. That, that, that was rather low lowbrow of me like please please explicate your your theory well I, I i want i want you to consider the idea for a second is this a true story I, what do you mean by true jesse uh well what could i mean by true what, what, what do you think do you reject this as a well you know there's that wonderful line about where the f- fellow says uh i'm not really happy i just think that i am Um, you know, there are works like Alice in Acidland that purport to explain Alice in Wonderland as a series of drug-induced hallucinations from a menu of different drugs. What do you mean by true? Are you saying, do I believe that there was some unnamed person who went out on a hillside one night, saw some stars, and then mystically, magically, or even drawn by arachnoids and ichthyoids, managed to go through all of space and time for billions of years? Uh, no, I don't think so. Do I think somebody felt they had this experience? Now I'm beginning to want to listen to what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Brian? Is this a true story? <clears throat> I'll have to consult with my local um, symbiotic uh, mind utopia. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, something Paul pointed out uh, had had me thinking about this idea all the way through. Um, at some point in the novel, we get a summary of Last and First Men. Mm-hmm. Um, the main character lives where Olaf Stapleton lives. Um, it says the unnamed narrator uh, on the ta- in, in a Wikipedia summary. Um, I don't know what it says inside the dust jacket uh, as to you know, what the marketing was or anything like that. But I can tell you that um, considering uh, that I, I don't think astral projection is anything more than imagining what things are out there. But it was a it was a big thing back the time this book was written. It is a way of uh, traveling to the stars, uh, in theory. Um, but I... I, I I'm not sure that the answer can be this isn't a true story unless you say, no, he made it up. Uh, But I think the contents of this book make it such that that sort of thing doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, It's not a history like, uh, you know, Henry VI uh, is supposed to be a history. It's a personal experience and because of the experiences listed, 
Um, they are imagination experiences, aren't they? Yes. So isn't this a true story? Well, well, as you said, as you said, I pointed out that Last and First Men is referenced in this book. So I did at some point think, okay, is Olaf the na- unnamed narrator in this? I, mm-hmm. I did consider that part of your of your uh, your thesis before for the podcast. Like, huh, Olaf actually is the person we're talking. We're t- He's talking standing on a hill. He's- he looks up at the sky. He's thinking about his wife and kids inside the house, and then has these experiences that he writes down in a book. Uh, none, none of this is um, impossible. In fact, it probably actually happened, or, or at least a germ of it. Like he imagined, and then he thought, "Okay, that's a, that was an interesting fantasia I had. Maybe I can write more about what would have happened if I kept standing there." I don't think he had the entirety of of that experience standing on that hill, but did he have a, an, a Fantasia for lack of a better word, standing on the hill and turn that like this, this, I could use this and write a book based on the start of this and went ahead and did it. Yeah. I, I could find that totally plausible, but not, not just like a Fantasia, but like every world that he describes out there, right? He goes to all these worlds and then he goes to the creation of universes considering how big the universe is that we know of and how many stars are out there and how many planets are around those stars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> it's the, those episodes of Star Trek where they go to a, an alien planet and everybody there is dressed up in Nazi costumes, you know, <laughs> that is possible in our own universe, even though it's ridiculous, it's possible given the number of stars and number of planets around those stars. It's just, in fact, it's almost inevitable, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, know, I, I go ahead, Brian. No, sorry, Paul. Go ahead. Uh, I have a long-standing, uh, a, a, I'll call it a fantasia that somewhere in some distant planet in this universe or another, my entire life is being broadcast as a as is a television show. I, I discussed this when we were talking stuff about like uh, the Truman Show. It's like the, mm-hmm. so, so some actors playing me somewhere where I'm talking to a podcast, it, but because just because of the nature of infinity, it's possible. Mm-hmm. And then, well, the size of the universe and the age of the universe and all that stuff. I, I, I think there's I, an I, Italian, <clears throat> I think there's an Italian um, who would be perfectly happy to use the word true about this book. Um, but I think he meant true in a way that I don't and that, I'm guessing that most of the people who are listening to this podcast won't, but it's not an unreasonable way to to use the word true. He began a poem this way. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark. I would footnote that to suggest that the first paragraph of Stapleton's book giving us the word bitter a number of times and paralleling, in fact, the use of the word bitter in this other poem uh, has to do with the forest dark being a psychological condition. For the straightforward pathway had been lost. Ah, me, how hard a thing it is to say. What was this, was this forest, savage, rough, and stern, which in the very thought renews the fear? So bitter is it. Death is little more. And then he goes along and uh, we get finally through his imagination up a hill and then into the inferno. 
And what we have here is the beginning of the Divine Comedy. Mm -hmm. I believe that if you read Star Maker as a poem that happens to be a lyric poem spoken by one person, only one other entity, thinking entity in the entire book uh, is characterized, and that's the one who is closest psychologically to our narrator, Valtu, the philosopher, and Olaf mm -hmm. Stapleton was a philosopher, as we know. Um, what we get here is something paralleling the Divine Comedy. In fact, it begins the way the Inferno begins, and it ends at that supreme moment of the cosmos with all of the stars arranging themselves into a blazing uh, panoply, which is exactly how Paradiso ends, or I should say in both cases, it's the penultimate stage, because in Paradiso, we get that all the stars coming together to form an image of the rose from Mary. And then in both, the narrators are projected back into the world and no time has passed. I think this is not an accidental parallel. I think that the Fantasia may, in fact, have been there one night while Olaf Stapledon, whose initials, by the way, are perfect for worrying about how to make sense of our world today, since he's the OS we're trying to understand now. Mm. Um, but I think that he may have had a real moment on a hillside near his home. But I think that the literary background to this, Dante being the larger structural one and the romantic poets being the specific ones along the way, tell us that this is something that is planned, not just as a report, but in fact, to get a certain position across. But rather than expound on what I think that position is, um, I'll let someone else have some airtime, particularly to shoot me down if you want. No, I, I want to read read the beginning, just as counterpoint, you read the beginning of the Divine Counting. I want to read the beginning of Star Maker, just to, just to show that I, I see where you're going with this. One night when I had tasted bitterness, I went out onto the hill. Dark heather checked my feet. Below marks the suburban lamps, windows, their curtains drawn, were shut eyes, inwardly watching the lives of dreams. Be beyond the sea's level darkness, a lighthouse pulsed. Overhead, obscurity goes down a little bit. All this surely was good, yet there was bitterness, and bitterness not only invaded us from the world, it welled up also within our own magic circle, for horror at our futility, at our own reality, and not only at the world's delirium, had driven me out onto the hill. So I think I see where you're going with this, that the, 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 the narrator is not in the greatest of places, just like just like Dante wasn't when he stumbled into that forest and goes through a transmorphative experience. I mean, Dante has to go down through hell and purgatory to get to that. The, this, I mean, there are certainly challenges and reverses and setbacks in this longer scale, but I think I see where, you, I, I think I see where your thesis is going. I, I, thank you, Paul. Um, I, I'd add this, that, that Dante seems to have an abiding faith. I mean, the word comedy <clears throat> uh, means uh, originally, as the Greeks used it and as Dante understood it, not um, something full of jokes, but something that um, gives us a structure reintegrating society, 
uh, comedies end in marriage. Comedies, a, a sitcom on TV, a situation mm. comedy may have lots of jokes along the way, but the structural unit of the family that's perturbed by some outside problem or something that comes out of a growing pain within an individual or a misunderstanding among the members always gets resolved at the end. That's what makes the sitcom a comedy. Dante, I think, has actual faith that there is a divine comedy. That ultimately, after we have come out of the, the dark forest of our own troubled understanding of the world, there is the possibility for divine uh, justice and resurrection for those uh, who have been good. I think that Stapledon hopes this, but he's not sure that it'll work. And I believe that he's chosen a poetic form for this novel um, that gives us a a repeated experience. The the first movement, um, and you've just pointed to it, he says, overhead obscurity. And then as you read on in that first chapter, then one light appears and it stabs down to him like the, the raining spears in a Blake poem. Mm-hmm. And then when you get finally done with this first chapter, it's all obscurity was in flight. So as as this narrator exercises his imagination to come to have a sense of the importance of the world outside himself, he becomes more and more open to the experience of others. We never know exactly what this bitterness is that's in the very first line of his narration, any more than we know exactly why Dante um, is in the forest dark. But the fact is that both of these narrators acknowledge their psychological state They don't justify it. They don't blame somebody else for it. In fact, Stapledon's narrator is explicit. He says about his marriage, you know, there were all these other forces outside us, but that wasn't that wasn't really what it was. You know, there was something in us. And he's out there trying to think his way through to what this means. And if you look through the the whole of his book, he starts out with an understanding what I'm thinking of is something I call a, an exponential rhythm. He mm-hmm. starts out with this kind of understanding and slowly comes to it, and then it takes off. It just goes, zoom, straight up. And at the end of that first part, when it says, and overhead, obscurity's in flight, right? Boom, we get out there. And then he starts moving through the universe, and he gets moving faster and faster with nice science fictional touch. There's a Doppler shift of the light and the yep. stars start changing colors. Right. And then, boom, he gets to the other Earth, which is the closest place psychologically to where he is. And he meets a few people that he can't get into, but he manages to make a meeting with another philosopher. <clears throat> Excuse me. Valtu. Once he does that, He's a composite character for the rest of the book until we get past the supreme moment of the cosmos. From there on in, it's we, not I. So that once he learns to be part of somebody else, it uh, starts to take off again. And then he gets to whole planets. And then he gets to solar systems. And then he gets to galaxies. And then he gets to nebulae. You see what I mean about this exponential rhythm? Mm-hmm. And that exponential rhythm is actually in some individual paragraphs. So this is sort of a fractal experience. I think what Stapleton is trying to do is get us as readers to feel the possibility of getting more and more into something strange. And then as soon as we've learned from that experience, 
he starts again, getting us into something even more and more and more strange until eventually he hopes we have so encompassing a vision that like the arachnoids and ichthyoids, we can have a world at peace, although we recognize how different we are, just as he sees his marriage as the small atom of community, which stands for the whole of the physical body of the universe. This is 1937. And in the preface, he tells us, why should somebody write a fantasy at a time when the whole world is on edge? And I think his answer is, the fantasy gives us an emotional experience as readers, a projection that will allow us to see that we can come to understand beings so different from us and yet still learn to be with them. This is this is a lyric not like the divine comedy that absolutely trusts in the order of the world but rather one that sees the possibility of disorder and hopes to give us a sense that we collectively can create an order for the world, but the hope is still there. That's why this narrator, who recognizes his own bitterness, but says at the end of this section that there would be hope. Uh, let me see if I, if one could know whether among that glittering host that were here and there other spirit-inhabited grains of rock and metal, whether man's blundering search for wisdom and for love was a soul and insignificant terror or part of a universal movement. That's what he wants. And then the book starts. Brian, you were saying, and I agree with you completely, I, I thought you would say it, that this is a World War One novel, or novel out of World War One. Well, there there are two pasts here, and um, and the first past, just on a on a personal note, is um, uh, I believe it was uh, 1986, and I was 19, and I took a class with Eric, who who taught Star Maker, and uh, my notes for that class, along with some other classes, have unfortunately perished in the flood, but I have my copy of the book with my notes. And uh, a couple of years ago, I started rereading the Divine Comedy, and reading the first page of the Inferno brought to mind, Derek, your discussion of this very point. Uh, so that was a nice bit of, uh, of referentiality, at least at a personal level. So listening to you right now, Eric, I, I was recalling uh, an awful lot of memories imbricated upon each other. So thank you for that. Thank you. I, I didn't read this as... Um, a true story, Jesse. So I'm still, my mind is still working through that. Um, it's the centenary of World War One, an ongoing centenary, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about World War One and its impact on many things, including literature. So rereading Star Maker uh, brought to mind uh, the historical context very deeply, and the preface almost made me weep with sadness because of you know, him hurtling into World War Two. And this is a man who was for four years. Uh, on the Western Front as an ambulance driver, a man who has every reason to have a very deep and abiding horror of war. And it actually made it hard for me to read certain passages as when the mad planetary empires become interplanetary empires and start exterminating people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, I think, in, I think there are several World War I angles, one of, one of which is the very horror of militarization. Um, now, 
in, in Britain, I don't know Stapledon's biography well enough to know if he would simply associate that with Germany in World War One, or if he'd also see that as something which infected Britain. Um, but but militarism itself uh, really becomes a horror. And in the course of the novel, where he's trying very hard to see all sides of most conflicts, it's pretty clear that he sees the uh, militarists as, uh, at the very best, as bad actors. There's also the real horror of war. There's that a heartbreaking scene where Valtu and and he, when they're just the two of them, are looking at the ruined planet, and Valtu is trying to trying to see the sunny side. He's trying to think of a way that we can view the Star Makers other than a homicidal maniac. And um, you know, I can only imagine uh, great. I, I can only imagine Stapledon a few years before in uh, Lorraine or in uh, other parts of the Western Front. Um, Jesse, you sent a. Um, uh, an account of uh, Stapledon, one-page account uh, from a local paper from Merseyside, and mm-hmm. he mentioned the absolute horror that he had of accidentally leaving somebody behind. Uh, yeah. We thought was, I think the word was too smashed up to really be alive. Um, and I think that gives this novel a, a huge power. It all, I can't help but see this as a 30s novel in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely, I mean, fascism versus communism is a huge mm-hmm. theme, especially in the first half of the book. And in, in many ways, as I was taught by Eric, this is a book about how to organize the self and society in a positive, synthetic way. And I, I can't help but read this as a kind of secular myth, not just of astronomy, but also as a way of getting past the problems of fascism and uh, Stalinist communism in the 1930s. So, yeah, this is heavily a, a World War One book, plus the uh, – uh, one, one more aspect, and I'll, I'll stop, is the sense that World War One arguably, a lot of historians make this point, was a greater shock to civilization than World War II. Mm-hmm. World War II, after all, was the, the sequel, and a lot, of the, a lot of people alive at the moment had experienced World War I directly or indirectly. But World War I was a terrifying shock that nobody foresaw in August 1914, especially the true depth and horror of its devastation. One key component was the role of mechanized warfare, uh, which blotted out the romantic notion that many took to war in August 1914. And so reading through this again and again, the cycle of mechanization, it's fascinating to see mechanization leading to an improved life, lifespans, that kind of thing, but also how it keeps sapping the heart out of civilization after civilization, mm-hmm. leading to soullessness, uh, turning the plant people into terrible mutations. Um, you know, that really feels like a, not a Thorovian view of technology, but but definitely the one who is someone who has lived through the onset of the tank, of the massive artillery, of the of the massive deployment of machine guns, of poison gas, of barbed wire, of the submarine, of the of airstrikes. I mean, this is a it, mechanization here has a very very peculiar and specific tinge to it. Mm. I'd like to make a couple of points, uh, extending what what you're saying, Brian. I, I think. I think you're right uh, very much about that, the sense of horror, um, which is a, a subtext. It's, a, it's more quietly put forward than the explicit bitterness, but it's there. Um, I think that, that World War I and World War II are seen as two different episodes now as we look back. But in 1937, there was no World War I. It was the Great War, yep. and and it hadn't ended. In 1937, uh, as you say with your reference to fascism, 1937, people already knew 
about the the growing territorial demands of Germany. They had been watching the incredible brutality of the Spanish Civil War. In a way, all of what we call World War One and World War Two is politically motivated by the shaking off of European or North Atlantic colonialism. And a state of warfare never really ends, even though in England, people are not actually fighting in 1937, but they are very aware, as the preface makes clear, and it is growing industrialization, just as you say. Um, it's also, of course, from Stapleton's viewpoint, not just industrialization, but materialistic and uh, industrialization, capitalism driving it. Um, I'd say something else, too. I think the reason that there's a horror is in part because much as Stapleton would like to see a way out, ultimately he can't. That is, the only way out is an act of faith. When you said, Brian, that there's the question, how can we not think of Starmaker as a homicidal maniac? Um, there is a line in the book that addresses that. But no sooner had I, in my blind misery, cried out then I was struck dumb with shame, for suddenly it was clear to me that virtue in the creator is not the same as virtue in the creature. Well, that may be an interesting philosophical position, and I guess if you can accept it, then you can accept the whole problem of theodicy. Why does a good God make it possible for the innocent to suffer in the world. But most of us have a lot of trouble accepting that. And ultimately, if we do, it's simply on the basis of faith, not logic. And that's another reason that I see this between the wars outcry, the need for something greater than humanity is providing, much allied with the Divine Comedy. Stapledon wants to be able to come to the point where he can believe that there is some other virtue that we can strive for. I, this, is, this is one of the limitations of an audio-only medium, is that you can neither see me nodding my head frantically uh, <laughs> nor, nor jotting down notes. I also, <laughs> Eric, you'll, you'll be delighted to know I have a new Apple laptop, and the, uh, after being a Windows-only guy for a decade, and the uh, the keyboard makes almost no sound at all. So I've been on many business meetings where people say, well, what do you think, Brian? I'm, like, I'm typing, I'm typing. You know, but the, um, I actually have a portable uh, detachable USB keyboard that is really noisy. And I've used that in some meetings just to remind people I'm typing. Um, I, I think this is, I think this is all true and I appreciate the extension. Um, I, I'm not a major C.S. Lewis reader nor a fan, um, but your discussion of this makes me uh, really want to reread, or <clears throat> sorry, finish the Space Trilogy. Um, <laughs> because I, I infer that Lewis found this, this book deeply uh, uh, horrible. You can see why, right? Yeah. Well, well it, you can see why at a, at a, at a reading, but, but also, Eric, um, just you know, the way you're, you're probing this further into the key referential religious text of the Dying Comedy, I would... I would go even further and, and set this up as a as a as a Lewis nemesis in that um, the 
the religious impulse is quite interesting. Uh, rereading it now, one of the things I keep finding is how so many of the military crusades become crusades. They become uh, uh, religious enterprises. And today, in the second decade of what the Pentagon calls the Grand War on Terror, or the Great War on Terror, it's difficult to discuss religious violence without trying to be both delicate, see multiple sides, qualify what you mean by religion. But I find it fascinating in the 30s, Stapleton has no problem with talking about crusades and mindless religious violence. Um, again, I can see why this would get Lewis's goat. But um, in fact, Eric taught me to, among other things, see anticipations of subsequent science fiction in, in this book. That's that's what I wanted to we, well, we'll get out. We the Dyson spheres and so on, but I actually at one point I noted down a reference half joking to I wonder if this is where Poole Anderson got the idea for the High Crusade, uh, which is a oh, fun novel. But Eric, let, let me ask you, and, and please let me, let me ask everybody else too. This is um, uh, a major question. Uh, I've been finding a lot of maybe it's just me, but I've been seeing a lot of two major 20th century. Um, uh, philosophies at work here, both spawned from the 19th century, but really becoming vast in the 20th. And one is uh, Freud psychoanalysis, and the other is Marx in the Soviet sense. Um, it's it's interesting. Maybe it's just me to see the the use of neurosis and sublimation again and again showing up. That the you know we have species that are sexually ill. Um, you know they have some way. The first aliens that we meet who have uh, taste organs in their genitals, for example. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a great that, – yeah. that, that's one of the most greatest inventions in all of science fiction. I've never seen anything like Almost that. as good as the uh, the organs in uh, Voyage to Arcturus, right? But, uh, yeah, but you get, amazing. But, but among other things, you get this post-Freudian post sense where you can, on the one hand, discuss sexuality imaginatively and frankly. You know, trying to imagine genitals with sense organs, say, from 1892, it's a little different matter. But also that, that that's not a bad thing. It leads to bad things when they become sexually perverse. And in fact, a couple of times in the book, uh, stapled Radio pornography. Yeah. yeah. Oh, is, yeah. The, the radio that, pornography. That we, we're really close. A couple of passages there to the feelies from, uh, uh, you know, from Huxley. Mm -hmm. But then there's also Marx. I mean, we get a lot of dialectics, and here I, I don't think it's really Hegelian. I, I think it's it's at, at least left Hegelian, the Marxist view. Um, and again and again, we get crisis of labor, right? You know, where species are split, divided, go to a civil war. He doesn't use the word revolution very much, but um, but it really seems like uh, you know these two great ideologies, the 1930s, are being taken seriously as philosophical artifacts, not simply as political enterprises. Uh, I think that's that's an interesting part of this. It'd be fun to read this alongside, uh, say, Alexandre Kojev's uh, Hegel lectures in Paris in the 20s, or um, Eric, who was, the, uh, who was the U of M professor who used to do that uh, class on um, fascism, communism, democracy, undergraduate seminar? That was a, he did this at the residential college, and I'm blanking on his name. Was that Dave Singer? No, no, no. no but it was it was a it was a first year seminar, um, and it no, was a staple routine. But um, sorry, don't remember. Well, it's okay. We're 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 both separated by by space and time. Um, <laughs> I, I I I I don't think that uh, we 
I think your idea of pointing to specific philosophic systems in this book and how they underlay it is really important. And I don't want to impede that, but if I could insert two um, supplementary parentheses to what you're saying. Uh, one is that um, I think that Lewis uh, was disturbed by this book, not only uh, for the reasons that you point out, but in fact, quite specifically for its adduction of Christianity. Let me read a paragraph. Um, again and again, he dissociated these two modes of himself. This is the discussion of Star Maker. Right? So if there's any stand in for, for a Christian God in this book, that would be it. Again and again, he dissociated these two modes of himself, objectified them as independent spirits, and permitted them to strive within a cosmos for mastery. One such cosmos, which consisted of three linked universes, mm -hmm. which is, of course is the, is the, the, the setup for uh, the space trilogy of Lewis, um, one such cosmos, which consisted of three linked universes, was somewhat reminiscent of Christian orthodoxy. The first of them linked of these linked universes was inhabited by generations of creatures gifted with varying degrees of sensibility, intelligence, and moral integrity. Here the two spirits played for the souls of the creatures. The good, that's in quotes, the good spirit exhorted, helped, rewarded, punished, the evil spirit deceived, tempted, and morally destroyed. At death, the creatures passed into one or other of the two secondary universes, which constituted a timeless heaven and a timeless hell. There, they experienced an eternal moment, either of ecstatic comprehension and worship, or of the extreme torment of, rem or re of remorse. This looks like, you know, Earth, Mars, and Venus in the mm -hmm. space trilogy. And what we're being told here is that this whole Christian cosmology is just one experiment for star maker. It has no special <laughs> status. It yeah. really doesn't bring things together. And I can see that if I were Lewis, the fact of Lewis's protagonist ransom being able to suffer for the redemption of the earth, you know, as an impossibility here, Right. The guy who gets to see the face of God here goes back to the earth and tries to reconcile with his wife in that atom of uh, community. So this is not it is explicitly not a Christian view, in fact. So it's not just the underlying philosophy. There's that paragraph. And of course, throwing it back to the point that, Jesse, you said you would like to pick up um, what we see here in that one paragraph is the setup for Lewis's space trilogy, which can be seen as a response to that paragraph, as well as a response to what's going on in the between the wars period. Eric, the you have to, oh, if, if, if I can just jump in just for one second, I, sure. I, you picked a much better passage than the one I was going for. Um, this is uh, a little bit earlier in the book is uh, a paragraph that I thought might cause some gnashing of teeth. Um, sometimes love seemed to us its essential character, and we imagine it with the forms of all the Christs of all the worlds. The human Christ, the echinoderm and nautiloid Christs, the dual Christ, the symbiotics, the swarming Christ of the insectoids. But equally, it appeared to us as unreasoning creativity, as once blind and subtle, tender and cruel, 
caring only to spawn and spawn the infinite variety of beings. I just saw that paragraph as a as a kind of basket of Christ's was um, um, <laughs> that, that, that definitely uh, go further. Please continue. Please continue. No, no, Sorry. I think that's that's wonderful. The it, it's extraordinary to me um, as uh, as a, a thinking individual um, who does not happen to be a Christian that it is possible to think that a triune God is nonetheless unitary. And I think that what Stapleton is doing, that very good paragraph, is letting us see that, well, you know, if you can see God in three phases, why not see God in lots and lots and lots of phases? And why do they have to be human? And why do they know? And so on, which is, this is a disturbing this is thought. This Clark, too, right? This is, this is the amazing thing to me in this book is that it it's not uh, picking up on things in in science fiction in the past it's it's giving you a tour of science fiction in the future it uh, uh, reading this book you say oh this is that book uh the molten god's eye look at that <laughs> and then you go to another world and it's oh yeah there's paul anderson's the high crusade and hey look at this it's it, 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 i don't even think that this is also why I think it's true. You know, C.S. Lewis is seeing something as if like, oh, uh, you know, he's making fun of me. <laughs> but actually, um, I think that this that, that world that C.S. Lewis believes in, he thinks is kind of true. He doesn't think that Mars and Venus and Earth are those three worlds exactly. But in that book, that's a that is a whole, a unit, a universe unto itself. The novel itself is a universe. And that's why when he creates these worlds, or we we tour these worlds that are created by the star maker, and then they're gone, and a new world is, a new universe is created. The word universe starts to lose its meaning, so he starts changing to cosmos, right? Right. <laughs> um, it's, uh, that's why they all can be true, you know? The the only place that he didn't tour uh, in this book is, uh, you know, the secondary world of uh, of the clockwork. Well, maybe no, he even did that, right? The I have this theory about uh, the Game of Thrones uh, TV show, anyways, that you know it's a clockwork universe that uh, it's all in an orrery and mm-hmm. it's inside of a Dyson sphere based on just a <laughs> trailer, right? It doesn't quite work because there's stars in the sky and stuff, but whatever. That that world is true. Inside of that world, uh, when you're watching the show, you, you you believe it, and then you sort of discard it, and you you move on to the next thing, and you say, oh, this this world's true. You entertain this idea, and it's true. While you you know, Lewis is saying, no, 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 it's just the, this one. We've got God, and we've got heaven and hell, and we're all trying to seek God's you know stuff. This this guy Stapleton is amazing because he's he's like Clark, uh, but what Clark does in sort of little slight you know watercolors he's painting in very uh bold oils you know like on a massive canvas the, the most and massive canvas possible i i've never seen a canvas this big well it's, clark it's said in an autobiographical essay uh that when at the age of 12 in the library in minehead england which is where he was living then um he came upon a book of stapleton it changed his soul, and he remembers 
totally. copying out the the scales of magnitude at the end of the book. Oh, I love those. I, 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 last and uh, first men or a star maker. It must have been Last and First Men, given no. the age, um, because Last and First Men is 1930, so Clark could have yeah. done that at 12, but yeah. he was past 12 in 1937. Mm-hmm. I was showing this to my son this morning, the uh, the um, uh, Dover edition, the two books, and uh, my son is 17, which is always an astonishment to me. But um, Oh my God, Brian, I was at I your know. wedding. I know, I know. Oh, wow. So he, so I was introducing the book to him and um, you know, the, the two books together, and uh, I pointed out the uh, the time scales in the first one, you know, ending with two billion years. So that's pretty good. But then he thought, no, I should think big now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And in the book itself, there's a par- in in Star Maker, there's a paragraph that mentions that there is a piece that covers the whole other span. Yeah, yep. it, 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 yeah, a paragraph and change. He covers all of Star Maker, all of Last of First Men inside of Star Maker. I, I, yeah, this is what Justin and I were talking about. Is it's like he encapsulates this whole gigantic other timepiece into one little bit in Star Maker. It's, I, he even says uh, in another book I wrote, right? Yeah, it, it is Stapleton. It, I don't know if everybody's pussyfooting around it being you know the unnamed narrator it's stapleton he wrote that book in another book i wrote maybe i'll write another book but he, what, I was, you know, what i was trying to suggest toward where we were beginning though jesse and not though is that he is stapleton in the same way that in the divine comedy dante is dante mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right the, the poets are not pulling any punches here they're saying this is my spiritual journey mm-hmm. well there is there is one one difference um in that uh, Dante takes exquisite political revenge um, throughout the Inferno, whereas Stapledon just leaves his version of Florence far behind. This is, um, uh, as far as I can tell, um, I'm not a Stapledon scholar, so I, I don't know if there are any, but, it, um, you know, the, uh, generations of students get to learn the difference between the Guelphs and all those guys in order to make sense of who's getting punished where, uh, which shows up in... Uh, Niven and Pornell's Inferno, right? Where they uh, punish science fiction writers, including mm. Kurt Vonnegut, especially. Yep. Mm. But I don't, I don't recall that happening in Star Maker. I may be missing it though. Stapleton is is not uh, a punishment guy. <laughs> I, one of the, one of the things that I was I was I was thinking, and I even tweeted it. It, it was you know when Lovecraft looks out at the stars and has his astral projections, he sees the the pointlessness and the bitterness and the sadness and the great horror of well maybe not the sadness but the great horror of being so minuscule and unimportant right it's not that you know a lot of people point you know say oh cthulhu's evil or this is evil lovecraft doesn't really talk about evil very much there's a couple of stories where you know there's an evil wizard or something right but these monsters are not monstrous because they're evil they're monstrous because we are so minuscule and our pain and lives are so unimportant in the grand scheme of things. But when Stapleton looks at that same vista and those same depth of time and the geologic age of the universe, the earth, he's, he's not as, uh, I don't know if sanguine is the right word for it, but he's, he's not as melancholy about it anyway. He's not a a horror writer. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about Lovecraft and and evil. I mean, it shows me a few times, most famously for me 
in the cats of Ulthar, we get the bad people because they kill cats. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> that's a, that's a, like, he has a lot of joke stories, right? And that yeah. sort of, yeah. don't be mean to cats sort of thing. But, you, but it's interesting to think about the, these two as contemporaries writing the 20s yeah, totally. and uh, having that. And using the same method of uh, star travel, right? There's no rocket ships back then. Um, they're, they're astral projection. Well, Lovecraft also has characters who fly with giant wings. So don't, you know, in that, in that sense, Stapleton might be a little more realistic, but, but Lovecraft's writing the, you know, is writing horror most of the time, um, when he's thinking cosmically. Philosophical horror though. But yes. I think what, I think something else is, I, I, I think I, I hate to, to, uh, to do long distance psychology. Um, <laughs> but it, it seems to me that like Poe, Lovecraft is trying to deal symbolically with his own, uh, what Freudians would call themes, the, the, the issues that he needs to deal with psychologically. And he, he handles them symbolically the same way that fairy tales handle certain kinds of fears. And then, you know, you get to survive. Or in the case of adult works, you don't get to survive. And that tends to be the case for Lovecraft um, and, and for Poe. But you, at least for the moment of the reading, can handle the fears. Stapleton isn't trying to give us a sense that there is a need to reach out symbiotically, um, to have some kind of relationship, to have marriage be an archetype for everything. He's trying to put us through a reading experience that gets us to feel this. We get to feel the narrator. Then we get to feel the association with Valtu. And we get to feel something. He's trying to give us an experience not to handle his problems. He's trying to give us an experience that will allow us to come to a new state of mind so that collectively we'll be able to solve the world's problems. This is an educational effort on Stapleton's part. Yes, he raises philosophical issues, but it's not simply a uh, a psychological excursion into known feared territories it has behind it an attempt to change our minds i think that's one thing that frankly from my viewpoint as a lifetime teacher i think that makes it something quite special Mm -hmm. it really does it's um uh, I think Lovecraft is really interested in getting you to feel something, but just a very different something. Um, he wants you to feel terror, and he wants you to feel cosmic terror. Um, and hence, you know, one of the differences in the prose styles, um, you know, I mean, we can we can make jokes about Lovecraft's vocabulary and so on, but he's really interested in giving you that sense of, of terror, which is, you know, classic, it's a genre issue, and this is a classic part of the horror genre. Um, is, is that the, the roller coaster moment of uh, inflicting upon you that moment of, of terror and awe and then making it safe? I do you know. If you, go ahead. If you were to look at the vocabulary, I think certain differences between them would emerge. I, I think that's a great way to, to go about it. If you look at Lovecraft, I mean, Eldritch comes to mind, right? I mean, you. Um, my love, I comes to mind. I mean, there's certain words that we think of. If you think about this book, the word that for most of us, the thing comes most to mind is lucidity. Mm-hmm. There is something here that is not physical sensation and it's not mindless fear. It is an attempt to see. It's what Paul pointed us to to begin with the obscurity and then the star. 
So I take a look this. I'm trying to argue it's not just feeling, but feeling that will train us so that we have ever more capacious sensibilities. I, I took a look at the word vermin, um, which gets used only five times in this in this novel. So here it is. Um, whoops, let me see if I can find it. Here it is um, at the is in the in the beginning. Um, let me see if I can find this exact paragraph. Um, uh, I've got to get the first use of vermin. Here we go. Um, I reflected. This is this is the end. Um, that paragraph, I reflected that not one of the visible features of this celestial and living gem, he's thinking about his, the earth now, revealed the presence of man. He's, he's far away. It's the, it's the blue marble image, right, that gives right. us a sense of contrast of scales that puts us in a, in a humbling place, which is useful. Displayed before me, though invisible, were some of the most congested centers of human population. There below me lay huge industrial regions blackening the air with smoke. I want to come back to that blackening sometime in our conversation. Yet all this thronging life and human momentous enterprise had made no mark whatever on the features of the planet. From this high lookout, the earth would have appeared no different before the dawn of man. No visiting angel or explorer from another planet could have guessed that this bland orb teemed with vermin, with world-mastering, self-torturing, incipiently angelic beasts. Beasts, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, incipient angelic, angelic beasts. So he's seeing us as as hanging in the balance, right? And it's that exponential style because the paragraph gets faster and faster till that last that last line unloads. Um, then, in the middle of the book, um, we've got uh, the stellar um, the, the stellar wars, and the vermin had much to give them. Ah, this is this is this wonderful um, wonderful recognition of the, the, the sons, stellar opinion began to change. The crusade of extermination relaxed and was abandoned. There followed a period of isolationism in which the stars, intent on repairing their shattered society, left their former enemies alone. Gradually, a fumbling attempt at fraternizing began between the planets and their sons. The two kinds of beings, though so alien that they could not at all comprehend each other's idiosyncrasies, were too lucid for more tribal passions. Mm. They resolved to overcome all obstacles and enter into some kind of community. Soon it was the desire of every star to be girdled, think of that sexuality and birth imagery involved, with artificial planets and enter into some sort of sim-psychic partnership with its encircling companions, for it was by now clear to the stars that the vermin had much to give them. The experience of the two orders of beings were in many ways complementary. The stars retained still the tenor of the angelic wisdom. See how vermin and angelic are together again in this mm -hmm. paragraph in the middle of the book? Of their golden age, the planets excelled in the analytic, the microscopic, and in that charity, here we go, Christianity, which was bred in them by knowledge of their own weak and suffering forebears to the stars. Moreover, it was perplexing that their minute companion could accept not merely with resignation, but with joy, a cosmos which was evidently filled with evil. That's the third of the five occurrences of the word vermin. And the fifth one, um, whoops, let me see if I can get to it. The fifth one um, is at the end of the book. 
when he's coming back to Earth. Yes. Um, let me see if I can find it. I got it. You got yeah. it? Yep, beyond the, pla- beyond the Plains, London, neon lit, seething was a microscope slide drawn from foul water and crowded with noising amiocules. Amiocules! In the star's view, no doubt, these creatures were mere vermin, yet each to itself, and sometimes to another, was more real than all the stars. So you see, thank you, you see what he's done. He started with seeing, oh, we're nothing but vermin looked at from the outside. Then in the middle of the book, he sees the potency of vermin among these other larger, more capacious beings. And when he returns to the earth, he acknowledges, yeah, vermin, but that's reality. This is a book trying to make us understand its key terms, just as Lovecraft has his key terms. But in the course of the novel, Stapledon wants us to redefine those terms. So they come out to have a larger, more forgiving, more tolerant, more mutually um, supportive um, meaning. Yes. There's a line, a line in the book that I've always loved, maybe because I've been married for nearly half a century. He talks about his the narrator talks about his relationship with his wife. And he says that they are I'm paraphrasing like two close trees that have grown together, mutually distorting and mutually supporting. Yes. That's what the vermin can be. That's what we need to understand, that distortion can be support, that difference can be strength, that Germans and Englishmen can, in fact, inhabit the same world. Please, please, please. Worst timing of a publication ever, then. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh. Okay, I'm going to jump here. Because this actually reminds me of something I've been thinking about when I was listening to this. And Je- Jesse knows I love this because we discussed this before. And it's the Orson Welles uh, radio version of The War of the Worlds. Right. And and lots of people miss at the beginning that the, the, the broadcast actually doesn't take place on the night of October 30th, 1938, the night of the broadcast. It actually takes place a year later because they talk about – because at, at the beginning, um, the narrator talks about the business was better. The war scare was over. Sales were picking up. And he's, it, it's as if Wells sees, sees the coming loom of World War II. And he, he'd rather tell the story of the Martians coming. So he diffuses the coming situation and scares it away so that he can bring his own fear, that fear of the outside, the fear that attacks all of man, all of humanity to the fore is like versus 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 the Martians. We're all in the same glass fishbowl and our differences don't really make a hill's worth of difference. Hmm. Nice. There's, a, there's a lot of beauty in this book, too. I I I one point, you know, we I've been doing a I did the six episodes on on the Lord of the Rings. Mm hmm. And uh, oh, we went looking for the ants and the ant wives, and I found the ants in the middle of this book. <laughs> that was a surprise. Oh, oh yes, the plant, the plant creatures. Yes, right. Um, but uh, I until they pick I, I up was, their roots, I love it. <laughs> but, 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 but then they have to regather them again, and then they get root bound again. Yeah. Right? Um, there's a. I'm astounded by that first. You know the radio. Radio sex world with the 
transmissions, and then there was yeah. the holy, the holy sex transmission that never went off. And I was just, you know, this is amazing science fiction. The, the reason I read that never side. got off is that what you said? Exactly what oh, I said. Um, the 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 Pope of that world wouldn't permit <laughs> the yes. transmission of the holy sex transmission. Um, however, uh, I think the one that was most beautiful to me was the ship ship's world oh the nautiloids yes mm-hmm. well well uh, no uh, there's the yeah. there's the i forgot there is also another one that's really good the uh, it's it's a large one and we spent a, a lot of time there is the uh the arachnoids in symbiosis with the uh, ichthyoids right well, that's the thought, you know i was thinking about the one you were thinking of where the nautiloids are so big that they're actual ships and they launch children into the water. yes no, that's yes. on I want to read from that because I think it's just some of the most beautiful science fiction I've ever read. Um, so this is uh, from the first uh, – I'm going to read from two paragraphs. It says, It was a strange experience to enter the mind of an intelligent ship, to see the foam circling under one's own nose as the vessel plunged through the waves, to taste the bitter or delicious current streaming past one's flanks, mm. to feel the pressure of air on the sails as one beat up against the breeze, to hear the, to hear beneath the waterline the rush and murmur of distant shoals of fishes, and indeed to hear the sea-bottom configuration by means of echoes that it cast up to the underwater ears. Mm-hmm. And then from the next paragraph. Sometimes we saw two of the living ships fighting, tearing at one another's sails with snake-like tentacles, stabbing at one another's soft, quote-unquote, decks with metal knives, or at a distance firing at one another with cannon. Bewildering and delightful it was to feel in the presence of a slim female clipper the long longing for contact and to carry out with her on the high seas the tacking and yawing the piratical pursuit and overhauling the delicate fleeting caress of tentacles which formed the love play of this race. Strange to come up alongside, close-hauled, grapple her to one's flank, and board her with sexual invasion. (laughs) It was charming, too, to see a mothership attended by her children. I should mention, by the way, that that at birth the young were launched from the mother's decks like little boats, one from the port side, one from the starboard. (laughs) <laughs> thenceforth they were suckled at her flanks in play they swam about her like ducklings or spread their immature sails in rough weather and for long voyaging they were taken aboard and at the time of our visit uh we- uh at the time of our visit i just lost my spot there you go. Natural sails were beginning to be aided by the power unit and propeller which were fixed to the stern and then I uh, just it, it, that is so stunning. I haven't seen that novel before in science fiction. Here's a novel that is yet to be written, a short story that hasn't been written other than in this. And it should be because it's amazing. The um, only thing I can be, come even close is Robin Hobbs ship of magic series where you have living where your ships made out of living wood, but they're not they're not physical creatures. They just happen to be wood that's become sentient because it's made out of basically old dragon parts but yeah i've seen nothing like this in anywhere else in science fiction you're right jesse it might be it might be that it's just done too well here that there's nothing nothing to really do more with it you know when i think it depends on what you mean by like this if you uh lloyd abbey's the last whales 
right. talks about yeah. those behemoths moving through the, uh, the seas um, in ways that are quite strongly resonant with hmm. what you just read. I've uh, not read that one. It's a it's a an elegiac book. It's the title "The Last Sounds Whales" good. tells you something about what's going on. Uh, although the whales are actually physical whales, they're not cyborg whales as you might think of Stapleton's creatures. I was just mm-hmm. afraid that um, I would open a tab here to the Amazon Kindle and I would find yet another subgenre of Kindle-based pornography. <laughs> it is. It's. 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 Uh, if, if someone hasn't done it, sexual invasion, right? SFF audio fans, this is yet another benefit Jesse and and the, all of us give you is free ideas for your employment. <laughs> um, you know. There's a. If this is a, an apt moment, um, we've talked. Uh, I'd like to talk about the, not just the the distant past, uh, literarily of. Uh, Dante in the 14th century, but but the romantic past of the uh, the 19th century for Stapledon. Um, there's a poem. I, I think there's something going on in this poem in, in in Stapledon. I think there are references to all sorts of things, not only foreshadowings that we've been discussing, but also pulling up things of the past and not simply philosophical systems like Christianity, but, but others. I've, I've long believed that much of Wordsworth's poetry is, um, too uh, admired too simply. That is to say, if you give it its simple, straightforward reading, um, it's a little fuzzy. It's like, you know, all prettified. It's like taking pictures with Vaseline on the on the lens. Um, but I think that those readings, although they are the more common ones of Wordsworth, are wrong, and that he is in fact deeper. I'd like to read uh, one of his sonnets to you because I think this sonnet bears on that crucial opening chapter of uh, of Starmaker. This is lines composed upon Westminster Bridge, 1802. Yes. Earth was not, has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth like a garment wear the beauty of the morning, silent, bare. Ships, towers, domes, theaters, and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully steep in his first splendor, valley, rock, or hill. Ne'er saw I, never felt a calm so deep the river glideth at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still. Now, when I first read Stapledon and saw his discussion of the, the, the houses with windows like eyes, but they were sleepless eyes, right? They were, I mean, excuse me, sleeping eyes. Um, the very beginning, one night when I had tasted bitterness, I went out onto the hill, dark heather checked my feet. Below marched the suburban wind lamps, windows 
their curtains drawn, were shut eyes inwardly watching the lives of dreams. Interesting, it's not watching the dreams of lives, but the lives of dreams. Hmm. The houses are sleeping. Not the people in them, the houses are sleeping. And of course, we know that that's not right. That's the image, except it's nighttime, not morning, that we get in Wordsworth. But I look at this. This is a key word here. All bright and glittering in the smokeless air. We're going back, Brian, to your uh, bringing to us to remember Marx. Mm-hmm. London is only looking so beautiful because it's smokeless air. So the last two lines, dear God, the very houses seem asleep and all that mighty heart is lying still. Huh, those last two words. Lying still can mean horizontal and not moving. It could mean horizontal and dead. It could mean telling untruths because it's not moving and letting us know what will really happen. As I look at this, I'm beginning to think that Wordsworth, and I think Stapleton understood this, Wordsworth has something much deeper going on. What makes the beauty here is not just the fields and the sky, but the ships, towers, domes, theaters, and temples that will open to the fields and to the sky. In other words, human activity, which can make things so blackened, as I said, there was a passage we read earlier from Staple that I wanted to return to, right? It can make things so blackened and terrible. But when it's not, when the air is smokeless, then we can look at what human activity has produced and it can be beautiful. So what we need to do, Wordsworth seems to be suggesting here, dear God, you know, is it possible for us to have this world and not smoke it up? This is a reminder of that other sonnet of his, the world is too much with us late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. What is there in nature that is ours? And at the end, he says again, dear God, I would rather be a pagan born in a creed outworn, you know, so that I could just hear Proteus blow his wreathed horn. This, this cry for God doesn't say, I believe in God, but it says, I want there to be a God so that we can take human activity here on the earth that I can look down on, on this city of London, and think of it being something that's not just the coming and going the smoke, the industry, the bitterness. I think that that belief in the possibility of bringing together the angelic vermin that we are with the divine things we can produce is in Wordsworth already and Stapleton is working on that for us here. Yeah. If you're going to throw down some Wordsworth and show how close he is to... uh... To Stapleton, I gotta say, yeah, it's exactly right. Stapleton is the anti-Lovecraft. Here's the proof, because this, uh, when you're reading that poem or reciting that poem, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, it made me think of one of my favorites <laughs> of Lovecraft's "Fungi from Yagath Sonnets," uh, the courtyard, mm-hmm. which goes like this: It was the city I had known before, the ancient leprous town where mongrel throngs chant to strange gods and beat unhallowed gongs. In crypts beneath foul alleys near the shore, the rotting fish-eyed houses leered at me. From where they leaned drunk and half-animate, 
As edging through the filth, I passed the gate to the black courtyard where the man would be. The dark walls closed me in, and loud I cursed that ever I had come to such a den, when suddenly a score of windows burst into wild light and swarmed with dancing men, mad, soundless revels of dragging dead, and not a corpse had either hands or head. It sounds like a World War One poem. It does. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it does. But... It's so, uh, you know, Lovecraft is full of racism and and sort of contempt for the vermin that he sees all around him. And yeah. it's he is the anti, uh, but they both have this view of the universe as, you know, being godless. And un, uh, one, of, one of them, it, it turns sort of bitter and, uh, but still beautiful. And the other one is, he's not so bitter. Well, again, he gets past his bitterness. There's a, there's a there's a generic limitation or a generic difference, and there's also a biographical difference. I mean, Love, mm-hmm. I mean, Stapleton died suddenly and pretty young, but Lovecraft died even younger still. Um, so it, you know, there's a question of where these guys would have gone if they if they lived beyond their their time. And Lovecraft had had wanted to go to fight in World War One, but was deemed, uh, you know, the country joined too late and. Uh, he was deemed unfit. Yeah, yeah. probably was. Yeah. Well, he was pretty sickly his whole life, you know. I mean, just uh, um, I mean, one of the one of the biographical readings of Lovecraft's fiction is uh, is how his sense of body horror is driven by his own perpetual engagement with sickness and death. I mean, you know, a guy who saw family members die around him, who was ill and weak. I mean, phys- you know, it's. It, it's fun to think about, you know, Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft being such good friends because they're so complimentary. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Lovecraft writes characters like M.R. James and Ghost Story characters, you know, physically mm-hmm. frail, mentally ambitious, but also frail. Um, you know, although, although you go back to Stapleton and say, you know, his character here is uh, entirely a point of view character. Um, characters in the sense of being I and we. But I would say... I. I, I that he's the right point of view character. Mm-hmm. What we know about him is that he is willing to acknowledge that he has culpability in the tensions in his marriage. What we know about him right. is that he has enormous imagination. And what we also know about him is that he is willing to learn from his experience of others. I don't mean simply that he goes to ever more capacious mentalities, as I suggested before, um, and I'm sure you all see it. It's not you know, my discovery. Uh, first Valtu and then the we and the Gozen and so on. But if you'll remember when he's first floating through space and coming to realize that the more he wants to go in a particular direction, the more he's able to do it, he comes up with this idea that somehow magically – He's been able to harness his imagination to get this, and I'm going back to your very first assertion, Jesse, this true idea of what's going on in the universe. Mm-hmm. But partway through the novel, when we realize the philosophical centrality of the relationship that the arachnoids and ichthyoids manifest, this complete symbiosis, another one of the key terms like lucidity, uh, this complete symbiosis between utterly different creatures or races. Um, 
we then come to learn, or I should say our now composite narrator comes to learn that he didn't get off the earth because of his own imagination. It was the arachnoids and ichthyoids who chose him to have this journey and made it possible. And Mm -hmm. he reports that entirely wholeheartedly. So although he is in one sense only a viewpoint character, he's a viewpoint character with some crucial characteristics that Stapleton wants us to have the experience of while we share this character's viewpoint for the, the, the length of this substantial novel. He is willing to see his own faults. He is willing to recognize that they exist even though there's no logical reason. He's willing to acknowledge that others can help him see past it. He's willing to understand imagination. He's willing to recognize that he has made mistakes. And he's willing to recognize that the most important things that he can be taught have to be taught by groups, not just by one other person. This is, uh, this is not saying there's a God in the world, he'll fix it. Thank you, Mr. Alighieri. Um, (laughs) It's saying that we can all do it. See, I'm even learning, too. And then he admits at the end when he comes back. But I couldn't hang on to it. Couldn't hang on to it because these experiences were beyond human understanding. And everything that I've written is only an approximation. The best I can do because all I can use is human language. Uh, this reminds me of that uh, episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, called "The Inner Light." Yes, the aliens s- occupy uh, Picard and give him an experience of their world. It's it's like it's sort of a mini version of this book, and in that he thinks he's having this experience, and maybe he is, and maybe he isn't. It's true for him, though. It's true for in the same way. That it's true for all the people who watch the episode, right? It's so well done that we all come to believe that it actually happened. And so you came back to your thesis. You couldn't get away. It, I I think it's I think it's might be provable. I, <laughs> um, this uh, this also shows up uh, in lots of stories. Uh, like I mean, I guess it's taken or similarly the Horla from uh, Guy de Maupassant, one of my favorite stories, is kind of a horrible version of this. And uh, then there's um, Passengers, which, again, is kind of a horrible version of this. Robert Silverberg? Yeah, by Mm -hmm. Robert Silverberg. I just read this interesting uh, short novel by Jeffrey Thomas, who's an up-and-coming horror writer. Really interesting guy. And this this novel was uh, called Boneland, and it's an interesting alternate history that... um, in the late 1800s, alien beings start trying to make contact with us, um, only mentally. They can't actually get here physically, um, and it goes wrong. Uh, they they are bad at it, so they drive people insane, and then the book hints that they are responsible for the First World War, um, and so they have to figure out a way to, uh, to make things better. So as a present, they decide to modify organisms on Earth, again through their mental powers, that will then evolve into useful functioners. So most of the 20th century's industrial inventions come about as a result of these modified organisms. We have TV bugs, we have uh, radio insects, um, little animals become uh, uh, cameras and then video recorders, you know. um, But we never get to physically see them. And the book is uneasy about to what extent the aliens are actually trying to be nice 
uh, or if they're just simply messing with us for our, their entertainment. Well, looking at it from the microcosmic perspective, passengers and the Horla, it does seem rather horrible. But when you're out in uh, Stapledon's, you know, star traveling thing, yeah. these things pass. Well, that I mean, that got me the, once. There was there was one moment which seemed a jarring moment. Um, you know, because Eric, I, I I definitely take your point about about the learning curve for the uh, point of view character, these kind of bodiless time lords. The um, you know, one of the things I liked about the vermin word tracking that through is that uh, he puts quotes on it halfway through. Uh, and there's a nice bit where he, where he compares um, their point of view character to a swarm of locusts, each of which would single out a suitable host, which is a little mm-hmm. unpleasant. But there's one one bit, which is definitely a 1930s uh, moment where he praises eugenics and uh, moves on. Well, he doesn't. He yeah. He, there was a couple of use EU words in there, and I I thought you know uh, that eugenics thing, it it sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't, right? And well, yes, you, yes and no. There's this one. This is a uh, chapter nine, the community of worlds, busy utopias is the subheader, um, and and I was I was surprised by this. Uh, let me just read this part. In this happy phase, then which must, might last for a few centuries or for many thousands of years, the whole energy of the world will be devoted to perfecting the world community and raising the caliber of the race by cultural and by eugenical means. And the next paragraph goes into great detail about this um, and then mentions some problems. Ignorant enthusiasts would advocate ruthless misguided interference in the choice of mates, but in the more enlightened age, these dangers were avoided and recognized. Even so, the eugenical venture did often lead to disaster. The splendid race of intelligent avians we saw reduced the subhuman level by an attempt to extirpate susceptibility to a virulent mental disease. But mm-hmm. this is this is not a, a problem with eugenics. This is a problem with doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it reminded me of uh, the beginning of um, The King in Yellow by Robert Chambers. The, the opening story for me is always the most bizarre and powerful, which begins with this the narrator describing how happy America is now that we've solved all these problems and half the problems that have been solved are things like banning all immigrants from the U S taking care of the Jewish problem in some way, Mm -hmm. uh, allowing euthanasia and a really good eugenics program that could take care of those problem peoples. And they have a a right in, right in uh, Washington square park. They've got a special building for you. It's called the lethal chamber. Which yeah. it, it says, I'm pretty sure that's what shows up in Futurama too. But um, uh, it also shows up in uh, the new Providence comic by Alan Moore yes. and Jason Burroughs. The, 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 the comic that you plug almost every time I'm on the podcast. I don't. If you read Lovecraft, you must read this because yeah. it is Alan Moore railing against everything that Lovecraft stands for. He's also and using ex- using his own weapons against him. It's also a little defensive by Moore because Moore has come under fire for um, critics who see him as sexist and homophobic. I disagree with his criticisms, but they've become very very strong of late. Um, so here's a way for him to be anti-homophobic by doing it within you know horror fictions. Uh, most I don't think writer. he. I don't think he he's particularly worried about his critics. But uh, I, I I don't think he comes off as worried, but I really wonder. This is a, a big shift for him, where he's not doing. I think I think it's completely natural uh, in that he takes everything that Lovecraft hates, 
right. and turns it into something that we should love. Gay people, immigrants, sex. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it, 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 there's there's miscegenation, yep. a plenty going on, yep. and it's wonderful. There's there's incest, and it's wonderful, and it's like what? <laughs> it is it is something to behold. But it, I think it may only work for somebody who is a dedicated Lovecraft fan. Uh, I want to take this back to Stapleton. Uh, Absolutely. I, I mean, that wasn't meant as a criticism at all. I mean, I want to, I want to import what you're saying to the, the passage that we've just been talking about in Stapleton. Um, Stapleton knew his 1930 book, Last and First Men, although it is uh, read mostly by uh, scholars and uh and, and certain kinds of fans today was, in fact, an enormous bestseller when it came out. It's hard for us to imagine a reading public that would have seen Last and First Men in 1930 as an enormous bestseller, but it was. Um, so it's not unreasonable for Stapleton to think that his own readers in 1937, um, when he'd also published another couple of books before this, uh, might have that in mind. So I want to go back to that paragraph you were pointing us to, uh, Brian, and uh, re read a couple of sentences out of it that to me suggest he may not be quite as fully pro-eugenics um, as, as, as one might fear. Even so, the eugenical venture did often lead to disaster. One splendid race of intelligent avians we saw reduced to the subhuman level by an attempt to extirpate susceptibility to a virulent mental disease. The liability of this disease happened to be genetically linked in an indirect manner with the possibility of normal brain development in the fifth generation. Right. Now, why do I do that? Why do I point to that? Well, obviously, it says... Sometimes eugenical stuff leads to disaster. I mean, he's quite explicit. He recognizes that. But there's a second reason. In Last and First Men, remember, we go through 18 generations of men. Right. I think that 18 is not a random number. It's the, right. It means life, right? It's high Hebrew. Right? The fifth generation, if I recall that book correctly, the fifth generation is, in fact, the generation in which swarms of Martians that live as a hive mind mm. come and infect human beings and wipe out all of their individuality. So if I were to, to be asked, you know, what is the moral ideal that Stapleton hopes that we move toward? I would say it is individuality in community. And it is with the advent of the fifth generation, the fifth humans, the fifth men in Last and First Men, that the individuality gets wiped out by an over-excessive weighting of the balance toward community. So I don't think that it's random here that we've got the fifth generation showing this problem with eugenics. I think that for his readers, Stapleton is not simply making an explicit statement that eugenics can go wrong, but a literary allusion to show that this is a stage that if humanity ever gets into it, we've got to get beyond it. Aren't these the, uh, aren't these fifth men, the ones who, uh, wipe out a race on Venus that gets in their way? 
Yeah, I think they were. There's and I think they just. It's even mentioned here in this book. Uh, I will quote um, From epoch to epoch, his bodily shape, that is man, changed as a cloud changes. We watched him in his desperate struggle with Martian invaders. And then right. after a moment that included further ages of darkness and of light, we saw him driven by dread of the moon's downfall away to inhospitable Venus. So I love that, that moment, right? Which is like, you know, 100,000 years. Right? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, that, it's that scaling thing again. No, you're right. Um, that's, that's the book again. It, it also makes me think of, uh, I think, uh, something that he was dealing with even back in 1930 is the, the problem with fascism. Right. We we know that the problem with communism is that, uh, you know, it's not working out very well. The problem with fascism is on the rise in both of these books. And it it says, you know, you must be united in in the fasci, the symbol. Right. Right. You must be one of the community, not an individual doing going your own way. You are bound amongst us and any weak strands are removed and that causes great evil in the way that it actually did so do you think this is um uh ultimately do you think in a sense jesse this is a darwinian novel or not Mm, that term is really loaded so i'm not sure how to answer it Uh, i think i think he deals so much with biology that we cannot ignore that. I mean, it, it, the word right. in, the word that vermin comes up a lot, um, mother comes up a lot, but I'll tell you, symbiosis probably comes up almost more than anything else. Um, and uh, parasitism and symbiosis. He's a, he is obsessed with sort of evolution, mm-hmm. but I I also think going back to your analysis, you know, it being a Freudian and a Marxist reading is probably. Uh, a stronger thing than Darwinian. Well, that's the, you know, the, uh, well, first, I'm, I'm not saying this is necessarily a Marxist or Freudian book. I'm, I'm just, it's reflecting those developments. Right. It's, it's dealing with the, with the, remember that, with the reality of that in our world and Mark, Mark, how this must emerge in other universes. Yeah. Marx dedicated, dedicated cat, uh, capital to uh, Darwin. He thought that uh, he was doing for uh, politics mm-hmm. and political economy what Darwin had done for biology. I think he's right. I think he 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 got some of the details wrong, just as Darwin did. See, there, there you are again, being your you know Canadian communist. You know, you guys. Um, but uh, it's a joke, everybody. But uh, <laughs> but um, no, I I, it, I, I it, it's, it, it's liberals more like that. Point. Well, thank you by the way for getting rid of Harper. Appreciate that. Uh, oh. There's this. Um, he uses the line mutual aid at one point, and I think that's. Pretty precise. Eric, do we know from the biography of Stapleton was pretty well versed in Darwin? Uh, I don't know that. I do know that he was an external lecturer in philosophy, and we know that he makes reference to um, the major scientists of his time. In the preface to um, Last and First Men, he specifically uh, adduces J.D. Bernal as right. being an important reference. Uh, and Bernal is uh, known not only for being an incredible crystallographer, but the leading historian of science at, of his time. Um, he also wrote a book. The Flesh and the Devil, right? Exactly, which is mm. about evolution. Um, I should also point out that whether or not 
Stapleton had Darwin in mind, he must have understood mm-hmm. that the word had to do with evolution because the word evolution enters our vocabulary first in relation to astronomy, not biology. Mm. And astronomical evolution is a major point of this book. Exactly. Yeah. Stellar yeah. evolution is, is was part of the, the development of cosmology starting, I think, in the 17th century. Yeah. So it's only later that Darwin picks this up. And when he picks it up, he's already picking up something that his grandfather has talked about in Zoonomia. Right. Um, so right. um, I, I, it can't possibly be that that Stapleton is unaware of Darwinian evolution. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it, how, yeah. how far the knowledge would go, because there's the um, it only shows up once uh, in this phrase of mutual aid. But this is a, a Darwin phrase which he uses. And the great uh, Russian anarchist Kropotkin picks up on this and actually turns it into a book, which I still think is a really powerful, powerful book. It, uh, Kropotkin's take on Darwin, I think he's right on this, is, is very simply that you know you have two ways to proceed as a uh, as a social organization. You can use competition or you can use mutual aid. Um, and you, Kropotkin's criticism is that society went mad for the uh, competition part. They loved the idea of nature and markets, red tooth and claw. Mm-hmm. Kropotkin's idea was, well, mutual aid really works. And his book is a kind of mini Stapledon book where he starts off by looking at mutual aid at the cellular level uh, mm-hmm. when microorganisms cooperate with each other to help each other. He takes it up through multiple uh, biological strata up until the human race and then through uh, uh, the human polity. I, I, guess I think it's a, it's a very powerful book. But that, but that phrase shows up um, here in Last and First Men and I, I thought it was... Uh, yeah, I mean, this is poignant uh, passage. In spite of the possibility of mutual aid, the two races strove to exterminate one another and almost succeeded. After an age of blind mutual slaughter, certain of the less pugnacious and more flexible varieties of the two species gradually discovered profit and fraternization with the enemy. Profit's nice a part. very interesting word. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, which word? I couldn't. Profit is a very interesting word. Yes, yes, because this is, like I said, I don't think this is... Um, I, I think partly that's the you know, pre-Marxist English sense of it, but also I don't, I don't think this is a, a Marxist book because right. all class struggles just turn out to be nightmares for everybody. I mean, they, they don't work out. But what it, what it does remind me of is one of the, again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong on this, one of the few passages where I imagine Stapled in 1936, 1937, turning to the reader deliberately, like Rod Serling at the end of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street and just mm-hmm. telling you what's going on. There's this bit where he says, this is uh, in worlds innumerable. Few could understand that their world must be saved, not by violence in the short term, but by gentleness in the long run. And still fewer could see that to be effective, gentleness must be a religion. That lasting peace can never come till the many have wakened to the lucidity, and there's your lucid word, mm-hmm. of consciousness, which in these worlds only the few could as yet attain. There's a paragraph break, and he totally changes the subject. Uh, he gets all meta, goes back to the, you know, what am I doing here uh, perspective. And it's it's astonishing. It's this this moment of telling us, you know, dropping almost almost coming to Jesse's true story nature and telling us, this is what I think. And that seems to me that gentleness, even even the form of being struck into a, the form of a mandatory artificial religion, is worth it for him. And that seems to me a call for mutual aid, which is why I'm thinking of Darwin. Mm-hmm. So this book is filled with a struggle. Over and over and over again. It, it, um, but every so often there's this counterpoint. 
I'm, but, I'm sorry, Paul. Go ahead, please. But, you know, take a look at that famous um, – I'm not saying that's a bad locution. If we think of that famous last paragraph, I think from chapter 15 of the, the origin of species, the entangled yeah. bank. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it is certainly true that Darwin proposes a theory of natural selection in which individuals compete in which, you know, there are predators and prey. Um, but that after all is the natural state of things. But when he talks about that entangled bank with all of its many life forms, vegetable and animal, um, functioning together, he sees this as a beautiful tapestry. He doesn't see an incompatibility between the possibility of complex, larger evolution and, Mm -hmm. and, and functional stability arising out of the local possibilities of violence and that apparent contradiction is what one needs to encompass in order to be able to believe that Darwin gives us not simply a description of life, but gives us a description of life that we can appreciate. It may be hard at some times, but virtue in the creator is not the same as virtue in the creature. Mm. Quite true. Quite true. I I think that's a very positive reading of uh, of Stapleton. It again removes it removes this from being a Marxist book or a Soviet book per se, uh, and strikes out this third position, which I think he really wanted to do. Um, I think I do. There's a paragraph I'd I'd like to read um, because right. it does a number of very powerful things. If you want to try to find it, it's the one that begins the sense experience of a star. And I think, you know, we've talked about lucidity and symbiosis as being key terms in this book. And we've traced some other words through it. But clearly star, you know, is the word that comes up the most. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in order to help it be clearer why I want to go over this paragraph, I'd like to point out that in the center of this paragraph, there is the assertion that what we take in our Aristotelian and post-Aristotelian philosophies to be an absolute antinomy, in fact, is the case. That is, that free will and determinism are compatible, which, of course, can't be in Western philosophy, but this asserts that they are. The sense experience of a star, though so foreign to us, which is now this enormous, capacious viewpoint, Proved, after all, fairly intelligible. It was not excessively difficult for us to enter telepathically into the star's perception of the gentle titillations, strokings, pluckings, and scintillations that came to it from the galactic environment. This is, at a larger scale, again, a repetition of what you were talking about, Jesse, with the nautiloids. The same thing again, but always bigger. Each time we return, always bigger. It was strange that, though the star's own body was actually in a state of extreme brilliance, none of this outward-flowing light took effect upon its sense organs. In other words, what we're seeing here is a selfless star. Only the faint incoming light of other stars was seen, that is, seen by us in telepathic telepathically sharing the viewpoint of the star. This afforded the perception of in, of a surrounding heaven of flashing constellations, which were set 
not in blackness, but in blackness tinged with the humanly inconceivable color of the cosmic rays. The stars themselves were seen colored according to their style and age, but though the sense perception of the stars was fairly intelligible to us, the motor side of stellar life was at first quite incomprehensible. We had to accustom ourselves to an entirely new way of regarding physical events. And here's the, power, the, sent, the line that just blows me away. For the normal voluntary motor activity of a star appears to be no other than the star's normal physical movement studied by our sciences. Movement in relation to other stars and the galaxy as a whole. A star must be thought of as vaguely aware of the gravitational influence of the whole galaxy and more precisely aware of the pull of its near neighbors. Though, of course, their influence would generally be far too slight to be detected by human instruments. To these influences, the star responds by voluntary movement, which to the astronomers of the little-minded worlds seems purely mechanical. But the star itself unquestioningly and rightly feels this movement to be the freely willed expression of its own psychological nature. Such, at least, was the almost incredible conclusion forced on us by the research carried out by the Galactic Society of Worlds. What, what Stapleton is saying here is if you give up yourself, I mean, you empty your ego, which lots of religions ask us to do and just feel others, you will naturally be doing things, you will will yourself to do things that if observed from the outside would look as if you had no choice because perfect selflessness will allow you to enter into perfect community. That trick of having free will and determinism simultaneous in our minds depends upon getting your karma clean, right? And if you can do it, if we can all do it, we get a world that we would all want. That's the real utopia. Yeah. These are philosophic questions he's trying to get us to feel our way through. It's an alternate explanation for uh, dark, dark energy, or sorry, dark matter as well, because the stars can do things. Oh, that was unexpected. We didn't, oh, can't calculate that exactly. Why is it doing that? Uh, Stephen, um, Stephen, the science in here is actually pretty damn good, I think. Um, yeah. Not much. Uh, I, I, the, the stellar I mean, evolution's a little off because we, cause the way we understand how stars evolve, I mean, they don't start as red giants, for example. Yeah. There, there, uh, there are a few uh, scale problems, too, perhaps. Um, he's maybe made the universe a little bit too small. Uh, the galaxies may be too close together, but it's it's pretty good. Um, I think the key word that we've discovered is lucid, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I also think that it, just standing on that hill looking up at the sky or looking at that city in London, right, in that poem, right. um, the reason we can see so clearly is because of the vast emptiness between those stars, right? It's... It, that lucidity becomes it, it enables the insight that that we get in this book. Being able to see those oh, billions yes. of years away stars, and it was his imagination that drew the arachnoids and ichthyoids to part the heavens for him, so that the obscurity would retreat. 
mm-hmm. that he could see that beauty. Uh, you know, there's also a lot of uh, symbolism going on in here. You know, we, we talked about the, the, the good science. Um, very soon the heavens, he's off, you know, starting to float off. And very soon the heavens presented an extraordinary appearance. This is that, that Doppler shift in the light frequencies. Yep. For all the stars directly behind me were now deep red, while those directly ahead were violet. Rubies lay behind me, right? Um, a price beyond pearls. Um, amethysts ahead of me, surrounding the ruby constellations, there spread an area of topaz stars, and round the um, and round the amethyst constellations, an area of sapphires beside my course. Okay, so not forward, not backward, beside my course. On every side, the colors faded into the normal white of the sky's familiar diamonds. Yep. Or yep. if he takes his own viewpoint with him, that encompasses all possible light. It's only when looking away that that we get these colors. And then he talks about how he was traveling. And so it is, in fact, diamond, which is the crystalline right. symbol of lucidity right. that he has potentially within him. He's learning how to have that. As a sidebar, can I just recommend that everybody on this call watch the TV show Steven Universe. <laughs> I've been told by lots of people I need to see it. I haven't seen it yet. It's it's really a delight. It like Adventure Time. It takes the point of view of a kid, but unlike Adventure Time, it's a, a much younger child. And all the characters, Eric, are based on a system of uh, gems. Um, I, I don't want to spoil it for you because it moves in striking directions. But it's 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 extremely elegant, very economical, politically fascinating. Just sorry. I'm asking for myself and my grandchildren who are in ages between four and ten. It's fine. It's fine. For whom is it aimed? Um, It's it's got that wonderful uh, cartoonish imagination that you see in the greatest cartoons where the the youngest children can appreciate it. Then the teenagers understand more and the adults really understand it. Okay, thank you. Ageless. Ageless. Yeah. Like Star Maker. Ageless. Mm hmm. Well, I, I I love the the when they actually when the novel progresses to the point of stars. I mean, I think I think that's fascinating, Eric. I, I've been I did a little tag cloud of the book, and uh, very very quickly I didn't get to manipulate the text very much. Um, and world and worlds loomed larger than star and stars. I did a quick word count, uh, and that seems borne out. Um, not a not a large difference, something like seven hundred odd to five hundred odd, but. Um, um, I, I think that reflects, if you don't mind the pun, it reflects. It, uh, it it shows, among other things, that so much of the book, like Last and First Men, is really earthbound, uh, really showing you these worlds and these polities. And we don't get interstellar travel for quite some time. And when we do, it's world-based, right? They haul the planets around from star to star. Uh, yeah, but then they, st- then they stop doing that. Uh, one, one of the right. interesting things I find about this book, we've, we've talked about before, is the the ever expanding cycles of this book. I was thinking a bit of uh, the uh, the historian Oswald Spengler in reading some of this because they, because the civilizations rise up, they fall down. Another one comes up in its place. It is spiraling upwards, but every, we get that pattern of growth, change, decay, growth, change, decay. The, the nebulae back at the beginning of time grow and then they came to the stars. And then you have the, then you have the stars going up and having their conflicts with the world. And then, Everyone's trying to husband their resources 
for that last moment that that one moment with the star maker and then and then the the universe starts sinking into into decay and 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 then once we have that myth at the end we we have whole cycles of universes doing this it's it's it it kind of also remind me of uh, the Thomas Cole Course of Empire paintings I don't know if any of you've yeah. ever yeah, where you start off the pastoral, you go rise up to the uh, consummation of empire and then down into the desolation and desecration and just so you have a new canvas to start it all over again. Could I, I, I think that's a very good uh, notion. Let me just, as a, a star, uh, a little footnote. Um, Spengler is the, the, the historian with whom one most associates these notions. Uh, his most famous book is The Decline of the West, and he is mm-hmm. a German. Uh, he's published this thing between 1918 and 1922, um, turns out. But I think that Toynbee's study of history is really more appropriate. Toynbee starts publishing this in 1934, and Toynbee takes the same notion of cycles, but mm-hmm. unlike Spengler, he does not conclude that there is an inevitable decay. He, in fact, concludes with the possibility that the West can recuperate. It can find the good things within it and go on to a next higher cycle. So I think his fellow Englishman, uh, Stapledon, is seeing this notion of cyclic history perhaps at least as much flavored by Toynbee's viewpoint as he is by Spengler's. There is a time in my 20s where I just sank into Toynbee and Spengler and read and reread their books. They're just they, partly it was um, reading a lot of future history science fiction like uh, Asimov's and Poole Anderson's, but you know, I deeply, deeply influenced me. And I, I just couldn't um, um, couldn't get enough of them. And yeah. uh, I, I in my notes, in my, in my ridiculously thumbed copy of uh, Stapledon, I've got both of those guys in the margins because I think they really matter. The the thing that would I wonder though about about 1937, and wonder if uh, Spengler's darker vision would be more appealing at that point than um, uh, I don't mean positively. Well, oh, I think it is more appealing, but I don't think that's what the book is for. I think the book is trying to say that is how one could look at it. But if we can only approach these apparent philosophical impossibilities, like thinking of determinism as free will and vice versa we might be able to get beyond this and go to individuality and community, which also sounds like an impossibility, but we could see if we were lucid. Well, if, if you view both Toynbee and Spengler as being uh, teachers, then this is definitely more of a Toynbee and uh, pedagogy, uh, mm-hmm. where it's trying, not to, it's trying not to make you think of Germany in 1920, you know, which is definitely a great place for thinking about the decline, uh, you know, a great Gotterdammerung moment. Uh, spectacular and depressing, horrible time. Um, but um, it, which sounds ridiculous to say before World War II, but that was uh, <laughs> definitely where Germany went from being the pinnacle at the pinnacle of the world um, and winning the war almost up until the last moment uh, to being just shattered and destroyed. I mean, really, a, a astonishing moment. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I agree. The uh, there's a there's a beautiful image I used to use when I would talk about Toynbee. It's um I don't have it with me. It's of a Bolshevik poster from around 1921 or so from the Prussian Civil War, and it's of a um, uh, a Soviet a Red Army cavalryman on top of a horse, right? And he's got an enormous lance and he's stabbing down at a dragon, 
and a dragon is labeled the white armies, which are the counter-revolutionary armies. And Toynbee puts this opposite, a medieval illustration of St. George slaying the dragon. And it's almost the exact same picture. You know, it's really... Which is in the National Gallery. I've seen it. Is, uh, I mean, the, 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 the St. Saint, the Saint George? Yeah, I mean, that's quite a famous painting. And it's, right. I've seen it in the National Gallery in London. That's why the comparison is so powerful uh, for Toynbee right. to see that, see that echo. And I, I, you know, in many ways, when you get this giant multi-civilizational perspective that, uh, that Stapleton has, it's, it's in part in that tradition, that, that late Victorian, Edwardian, British moment where they start, they start comparing all these civilizations that they're bumping into and uh, slaughtering and taking over. You know, this is uh, mm-hmm. the same period of the White Goddess, same period of the Golden Bough, and, uh, you know, uh, again, you can see why that would irritate Lewis who found the truth um, and doesn't really want to have the uh, multiple versions of getting at it. This is, this is, I just have to say what an extraordinary book this is. I mean, I just keep you know, reading it, relishing it because it's just the, the vision of this is just so striking and it makes me think in some ways less charitably towards subsequent science fiction. <laughs> I think one of the things that uh, is is worth saying, uh, we've all read the book, but but for those who might be kind enough to be listening to us, but who have not yet read the book, I think it's worth um, forewarning them. I I say this uh, having dealt with many, many classes of undergraduates reading the book because I told them that they should. Um, And what I found is that... uh, when I asked at the end of the semester, which of the many books for the course did people most like um, and which did they most dislike, there was a distribution. But um, this book turned out to be the most disliked yeah. by, <laughs> at least, by at least a third of the students. But it was the most liked by about 10 percent of the students. And uh, and you were one of those, Brian. Um, <laughs> yes, it was. And I, I think even though when I read this, I had a hard time finishing it because I kept falling asleep. And that was partly because I was an undergrad living on two hours sleep a day and a quart of caffeine an hour. But, um, <laughs> but also, you know, the, the style, Edwardian style and the lack of characters, you know, that, uh, that makes it hard. I, last and first. That's I the thought, point. I th- but then, and that's, that's, that's what that was. That's what I want to make clear to, to, yeah. to people who have not yet read it. Um, it's called a novel because the lines all that all go to the end of you know the words all go to the end of each line, um, and it's long, and it's broken into things called chapters and paragraphs rather than stanzas, and it's only rarely that you encounter rhyme. The fact is, however, it has virtually no dialogue. Only one character gets named. Um, there is no normal discussion of human um, dramatic conflicts, except in the one section called the other earth and by reflection in the narrator's early thoughts about his relationships with his wife and family. In other words, if you read this thinking, what kind of a novel is this? The answer is going to be not a very good one. (laughs) But if you were to approach it the way you approach an epic poem and a lyric poem crossed. If you were to say, I'm reading a poem here and read it slowly 
and savor how those words all take on deep meanings and how the rhythm of the paragraphs brings us through an experience. If you can give this book the time and not impose upon it a set of what turn out to be erroneous expectations, it can be, in fact, one of the great books you'll ever read. And it can help you uh, feel better about your fishwife and your stepchildren uh, when you're feeling a little bitter. Or, or and, if you're thinking about your um, the fish people of Innsmouth, because like um, yep. like Lovecraft, you know, Lovecraft. It, it, this is another similarity uh, which I haven't really pursued. Is that Lovecraft is famous for having almost no dialogue, um, not being a really good writer of character, um, but you know, being a a writer of ideas, very different ideas that we've been discovering. Um, and uh, it, Eric is uh, did Stapleton write many short stories? I have never encountered a single one, but to be candid, Brian, I've never gone and searched for them. However, I I will say this, though. Um, uh, His as science fiction, I mean, he wrote a lot of things that weren't science fiction, uh, but of his science fiction, the four most famous works are Last and First Men and this book, Starmaker, which sort of encompasses Last and First Men and then Odd John and Sirius and uh both Odd John and Sirius do read like novels. They've got characters, they've got names, they've got dialogue. And uh, even today, they read very nicely. And Sirius in particular um, lets us see that we're embedded in the um, in the politics of early 20th century Europe. And Odd John gets us to return again, as we are in Starmaker, to the question of um, the right one might have to impose one's will on another for the sake of a larger social good. That is, is utopia ever um, fair to the individual? So those two books pick up two different aspects of Starmaker that we've both been discussing. And those two books are substantially shorter than Starmaker and much, much more readable if you approach them with the expectation, hmm, I'm going to read a science fiction novel. I want to I want to try serious because I hear it's about a dog and I love dog stories. Uh, the only the only author we didn't touch on today, I think that maybe we should just mention is uh, Jack London. He wrote a novel called uh, was Star Rover, Star, Star Rover. Rover. Right. And that is another astral projection story. Um, but it brings his own personality to the, the game. So there's a lot more swords and. Uh, a lot less uh, wives. <laughs> more, more, more virile. I'd, uh, uh, no, I. You guys made me think of a different writer, not a contemporary, which is uh, Frank Herbert. Uh, one of the criticisms of the fifth volume of the Dune sequence is that it has no plot and uh, no real story. Um, and I actually like God Emperor of Dune. I'm sorry, it's the fourth book. Um, I, I like it a great deal. And for me, it's because it reminded me of Stapledon. It's a philosophical mm. novel. It's primarily about ideas. It, um, it scales up, um, Eric, the, the escalating scale, because it takes the, from the previous three books of 10, 20 years to thousands of years. Um, it does have a, it does have a little plot, a little framing plot, but it's mostly uh, a giant worm talking to you and abusing people and trying to work through ideas. <laughs> and, and like, um, like Stapledon, at the heart of the book is uh, a profound argument about human civilization 
Um, and it's where it's often missed. Um, the, the golden and, path, yeah. Yeah. No, this is really sick because I I've been saying for years nobody should read past the first book, but Uh-oh. now that you frame it that way and with Eric's caveats uh, that I absolutely took to heart when reading this book and Last and First Men, I I'm feeling sort of charitable towards the idea of reading beyond the first two Dune books, which I did. Totally worth uh, it. It's totally worth it. I, I don't know. I'm still skeptical yeah. here. <laughs> I, I I don't. I, sh- I shouldn't be bad mouthing anybody, especially someone I don't know. But um, um, I very much liked um, the first section of Accelerando by Charles Strauss. Mm. Um, it won a Locus Award. Um, the this is another book that does what we've been talking about here, where you you get you you leap by ever greater leaps, right? So the the second derivative is positive, not just the first derivative, um, right. and and frankly, it just falls apart for me. Um, I don't think that this. Me too. This okay. Well, no, so, I, I don't. I don't so think. The, uh, I, I simply I wanted to to suggest that by by that as a as a an example that the notion of putting us through the same thing in ever uh, greater, more dramatic ways. Um, it's an interesting pedagogic technique. And yeah. the fact that Stapleton uses it doesn't mean that, Oh, well, of course it must have worked. It works for Stapleton. It doesn't have to work. It's hard to do right. And Stapleton yeah. makes it look easy. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a high wire practice. act. Well, yeah, as a great craftsperson can do. I mean, I, uh, uh, I think that really, you know, I think that's a really good point. Um, that really holds. Up. I, I, I enjoy reading Charlie Strauss. I read a lot of his stuff. Um, I think he's stronger as a short story writer. Uh, I think he, um, a lot of his novels, I enjoy the first third or first half, and I have a hard time finishing. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Charlie Rondo is one I actually could not finish. Um, I just kept pushing hard at it, and then the and then stopped. I, I think there's a, there's a group of uh, modern writers who, and I guess Eric, someone must have written about this. This by now, this is you know the first generation of uh, full time IT professionals who are writing science fiction. Um, and you know, I'm like, thinking of, like like Ted Chang, you mean? Exactly. Yeah, like Ted Chang, like Cory Doctorow, um, and it's it's interesting to see how that influences their writing. And for people like Cory Doctorow or Cory Strauss, I, or uh, Charlie Strauss. I think it really shows their their limitations that they have that they they delight with ideas, but they it's a cliche, but they fall down with a human. Now Ted Chang is the exception because mm-hmm. you know, for me, I think the guy's just marvelous. He can do anything. He's amazing. Well, of course, I mean he is he is extraordinary, and you know one needs to note for those who aren't familiar with these folks, Cory Doctorow is no longer a full time IT professional. Of course, he's a full time writer and and public intellectual, uh, who was a full time IT professional. Ted right. Chang is one of the slowest science fiction writers in history, um, coming out with a story every couple of years over his career. Um, and so one can use the word lapidary quite, um, advisedly in relation to his work. Um, Corey writes very, very wonderfully readable stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think like Isaac Asimov, um, we have a brilliant mind who is a very, very good craftsman. But with Chang, I think we're dealing with someone who is a superb artist. 
we agree on this. Um, I only I don't I don't know how often we do two hour shows. Yeah. We are closing in on one very yeah. rapidly. By the storm, I know usually Brian has to go first, but actually um, I wanted to just close off by saying um, Borges wrote a introduction to this. I think it was not uh, for the English language market, but um, uh-huh. when Borges uh, writes an introduction to a book, you you, you know, read it. Yes. <laughs> Right. Um, Because there are a few writers out there who, you know, every century make us uh, say, oh, you know what? We should probably read most of what they wrote. And Borges has got to be one. And uh, I think Stapleton now has been added to that list for me. I think the 20th century was a lot richer uh, in the first half than I thought about 10, 15 years ago, because I I find a lot of amazing things uh, written not even just amazing stories, but amazing books uh, written in that first half of the 20th century. And I think this is one of them. I, I would totally be up for uh, a serious or an Odd John. Um, those are subtitled, by the way, Odd John, a story between jest and earnest and serious, a fantasy of love and discord. Nice. Those are the two with subtitles that I think either one of those would be a totally good read for us in future seconded i'd be down for that good idea this has been the sff audio podcast please join us at www.sffaudio.com 